Good, e good evening, everyone. Lovely to see you all again this evening, um, and again to welcome those who are not part of uh, our church here, but are from the local community or from churches in the locality. It's lovely that you're able to um, join with us for this evening. If you've read the publicity material, you'll know that this evening's lecture is being given by Andrew Fellows, who now lives in a community called Debris, which is not all that far away from here in Hampshire, and I think he's going to say a word or two about that. Um, he's asked me to say that he is really English, although he's got a Canadian accent, uh, and he was born in Canada, but, but his heart is in England, and he lived here for the last many years. <laughs> Now, those of you who arrived early will, will have noticed that um, we were expecting Andrew to bring a PowerPoint, but maybe after last week you've had enough of too many slides. <laughs> so variety is the spice of life, and Andrew is going to talk to us about what I think will be some very interesting um, ideas about culture within Europe and the way that um, different religions and the lack of religion play out. So without more ado, Andrew, over to you. Welcome. It's nice to see so many people come out on a weeknight. Impressed. Um, Liz just mentioned that I live and work in a place called La Brie Fellowship down in the other county, Hampshire, another one of the leafy counties. Um, and La Brie is French for any French speakers here? <coughs> shelter. That's right, the shelter. And we're, we're Basically, a group of families who live in a large old manor house. It looks like instead of a Jane Austen novel, <laughs> Francis has been there at all three. And uh, we open our doors to anybody who wants to come. And we've been going for 50 odd years. Um, and they're dotted around various parts of the world. And they're really expressions of hospitality to anybody. And it surprises us that people just keep coming. Because we don't advertise, we just have an open door. People come through, some stay for a few days, some stay for a few months. Wide variety of ages. Um, many come from a Christian background, but many come from a background which isn't Christian. Um, and we share life together. It's as simple as that. And you're all welcome, it's an open door. Just let us know, we'll have lunch on for you today. <laughs> we go. My wife's not here, so I can do that. <laughs> right, the subject tonight is, is huge. It's a very large one. I want to deal with the state of religion in Europe today. And I'm not claiming to have the objective viewpoint on it. It's a complex subject. And I need to just be very clear, I'm speaking from within my own Christian worldview. So I'm speaking as a Christian to it, but I'm trying to be as fair as possible in terms of what's happening. So I'm trying to map the religious landscape of Europe. And uh, I'm going to go through my material, and I'd love to leave lots of time for questions. There's things happening right now. There's things happening this week in the news, which very much relates to what I'm saying here. Uh, and I think we need to begin by saying that over the last few decades, there's been a monumental shift in the religious landscape of Europe. 
and please don't read too much into my politics here, when I use the term Europe, I include the United Kingdom. <laughs> I said don't read too much into it. Now lots has shifted, as I say, over recent times, which makes it easy to get lost in what's going on today. And it's easy to obsess on small details and to miss the larger picture. For instance, there's a lot of focus in the media today about extreme Islam. And I'll address that a little bit. But it's easy to obsess on that and lose a much broader picture. And our media tends to do that to us, doesn't it? It gets very caught up in small details and makes a huge amount, uh, gives a huge amount of attention. So I'm trying to give you a broad sweep of the whole thing. And I want to take my meta metaphor of the landscape and shift it to a moment to cityscapes. Because actually if you look at the cityscapes of European cities, you see huge changes taking place. Let me illustrate that with a story. A few years ago I was visiting Kiev in Ukraine, and it happened to be May Day, which is the big rally day for the communists. And we think communism has died, but actually there were thousands out in the main square who were rallying for the cause of communism, marching with their red banners. On the opposite side were the oranges. This was just after the Orange Revolution, which was everything that communism is not, liberal democracy. And they were chanting and yelling at each other. And in the background, you have city squares. It's, a, it's huge and it's beautiful. You had the cityscape behind you there, and you saw several of Kiev's most famous Orthodox churches. Beautiful domes. It was a wonderful sight. So you had all this color going on. You had the symbol of the various ideologies, Marxism, liberal democracy, the Orthodox church. And I just happened to look up, and towering over all of it was a big yellow M. <laughs> Philip, my friend here, is from the, the place that invented McDonald's. <laughs> there it was, in Kia, towering over the whole thing. And I thought it was an eloquent snapshot of Kiev. There's liberal democracy in a struggle with Marxism. There's the church. Churches off in the distance, wondering what place they have there. Present, but kind of marginalized. And over everything, the great symbol of modernity, McDonald's, the yellow M. The only thing missing from that cityscape was another round dome, which would be the dome of the mosque. That's the one thing not there. But in the majority of European cities, mosques are conspicuous now on the skyline. You think of Spain. The great mosque of Cordoba overlooks the Alhambra Palace. <clears throat> And it's a huge historical monument to Islam in Spain. So, there it is for us. We have the mosque, the Christian cathedral, and McDonald's, which is the symbol of modernity, which I believe represent the three main players in the religious landscape of Europe. Christianity, Islam, and modernity, which I will define in a moment. Now let me just give a very brief historical sketch of religion in Europe. This is 2,000 years of history in 20 seconds. <laughs> the first player on the scene is Christianity. Christianity enters Europe as, the as a minority religion when paganism is dominant. 
And in a series of remarkable events, it becomes the religion of Europe from the 4th century onwards. Historians call this the gentling of the barbarians. Whatever we make of that phrase. But from the 4th century onwards, on this continent that we belong to, Christianity has dominated the cultural, political, and intellectual life of Europe. That's our history. Many deny it when the Constitution was being put together for the European Union a few years back. Seven, eight years back, was it now? That, that Constitution made absolutely no reference to our Judeo-Christian roots. Someone called it the most Christophobic document ever constructed. <clears throat> but it was a nonsense, because you can't talk about European history without talking about our Judeo-Christian heritage. It's dominated the cultural life of Europe. The second player onto the scene is Islam. Islam enters Europe via North Africa, and this is the invasion of Spain by the Moors in the 8th century. And although they're repeatedly pushed back, the Moors are a presence in Spain until the 15th century, which isn't that long ago. Then through the Middle Ages, we have the Crusades. Those of you who can remember your history lessons at school, the Crusades just go on and on and on on and on. And that's an ongoing conflict between Christianity and Islam. Then you have the Ottoman Empire, which is Islamic, which is a major threat to the stability of Europe for hundreds of years. At the turn of the last millennium, many saw Islam as the main threat to the survival of European states. And as late as the 15th century, Cranmer, I think you had a lecture on Cranmer's prayer book last week. Cranmer is writing collects for the prayer book with the word, save us from the Turks and the infidels. It sounds pretty horrible in our modern context, but he's just saying, save us from the onslaught of the Muslims. Then in 1683, Vienna is liberated from the Ottomans who came very close to taking the city. In fact, it's not until the rise of the European empires in the 18th century that Europe finally stabilized itself against Islam. So the British defeat of India, where there's a large concentration of Muslims, and then the French taking North Africa, North African uh, nations for her empire. Now, I give you this very Potter history to remind you that when Christianity and Islam meet in Europe today, there is a lot of historical baggage. The news doesn't reflect that. There's a lot of history behind this, this matter. And these struggles are part of the historical consciousness of Europe. Now allow me to introduce the third player in Europe's religious drama, which I'm calling modernity. Modernity has a complex history, but it's founded on a new ideology, which is modernism. Put simply, Modernism was what transpired when philosophy transferred its allegiance from religion to science. So philosophy had hinged itself, hitched itself to religion for hundreds and hundreds of years. Suddenly modernism says, no, philosophy is going to hitch itself to science. And science is pursued with a kind of religious obligation. So it was modernism that ensured that science would rule over religion as an intellectual authority. 
You know, in the pre-modern world, science and philosophy define their position in relation to religion. Whereas in the modern world, traditional religion was displaced, and now science rules. And that's where we are today. So modernism displaced religion as an intellectual authority replaced it with science. That's the point. Now this change gave rise to some fundamental shifts in terms of what Europe became. And this social shift we call modernity. And we see a reflection of modernity in two key ways, fundamental to how Europe is today. First of all, we see the rise of the nation state. With the displacement of religion, one's national identity becomes a fundamental unit of human life. We call this nationalism. So no longer did religion define your primary identity. Whereas before this shift, if you lived in Germany, it wasn't being German, which was your primary identity, it was being Catholic or being Protestant. Modernity changes that. No longer is your identity function with, with a connection to religion. Now nation replaces God as an integration point for who you are. And that integration point makes nation state a, a kind of religious quality. We now define ourselves by the nations that we live, live, live in. And over time, the nation state produced what we might call an exclusive humanism. I use the word exclusive because nation state excludes all transcendent reference points for public life. Religion can have no place in how public life becomes determined. So socially, politically, and culturally, no room for religion. And what happened is that modernity consigned religion to the private realm. So religion is something people do in private. It's good for you, but it has no place in the public square. That's what modernity did. And then it's also reflected, secondly, in the rise of liberalism, a new form of liberalism. Liberalism is all about the freedom and rights of the individual. Now, liberalism has different forms within Europe. We have cultural liberalism that focuses on the rights of individuals to act according to their conscience. And it's freedom in the private realm. So it's personal rights that is given to all citizens by law, held by that, we're equal regardless of race, gender, class, and religion. And I, I believe in that. But it became very central, cultural liberalism, to modernity. Then there's an economic liberalism. This is the individual right of property. It's our liberty to consume and create wealth. And then there's a social liberalism. This is about the role governments play in ensuring that our liberal goals are going to be met. Now the point I need to make here is this, that liberalism was committed to what sociologists call a naked public square. The nakedness is naked of religion. There mustn't be any religion in the public place. Keep it in private, that's fine. But if we're going to have a true liberal democracy, we have to keep religion out as much as we possibly can. And it's interesting because liberalism defines the freedom of religion in Europe, but religion and everything else in Europe must be subservient to the ideology of liberalism. So liberalism rules. And in that sense, it becomes like a religious creed. 
Everything has to operate under the jurisdiction of the liberal agenda. So in modernity, the nation-state replaces the church as the primary institution that defines us. And liberalism replaces theology as the creed to live our lives by. See the two shifts? Nation-state replaces church as the primary institution that defines us. Liberalism replaces theology as the creed by which our lives are to be guided. So the complex discussion going on at the moment, but redefining marriage comes up right out of this. Not defined by theological creed, or even an ideological creed. That's not what defines it. Liberalism itself is the ideology, which will determine the discussion and its outcome. Now, modernity as the new and progressive religion has been very successful at marginalizing Christianity. And this trend has gone accelerated over the last few centuries. In fact, modernity has been so successful in its secularizing tendencies that we are now the most secular continent on the planet, Europe. We are more secular than any other part of the world. Now here's where we need to come to the next piece. In the last 50 years, the secular continent has had a religious challenge in the form of a previous contender, which is Islam. And this has caused another huge shift in the religious landscape of Europe, the full implications of which we cannot yet fully predict in terms of where it's going to end up. Now in the 20th century, the Muslims didn't come as an invading horde. We actually invited them to come here. They came as immigrants that we invited, not as hostile enemies. And they came in the post-war period when Europe was booming economically. And that created a severe labor shortage. Now, the nations of Europe admitted different kinds of Muslims depending on where their empire holdings were. So in France, they drew largely from North Africa. Here in the United Kingdom, we drew from the Indian subcontinent. And we brought them to our cities, the industrial centers of Europe. And that's why Muslims are largely concentrated in cities today, because we brought them to our cities to work in our factories. And we continued to invite them until our European economies began to falter in the mid-1970s. Now, it's fascinating, and research has been done here. Most of the European countries who invited the Muslims didn't see them as immigrants. They saw them more as guest workers. And when you look at the expectations back then, we thought they'd go home. They'd come here, make money, and then go back home again. But the fact is, they didn't go back home. And why should they have gone back home? And they had lots of babies. Family. But that wasn't thought about. Now it's interesting because back in the 1970s, Europe abounded with secularization theories. Sociologists back in the 1970s predicted the death of religion in Europe. There'll be no religion into the 21st century. It'll almost die out completely. Back then, the real challenge was the Cold War. The Russians are the problem. The Reds are the threat. And few Europeans were looking into the future to see the consequences of the religious diversity which would be on our soil. 
because of this, and it's interesting also that at the same time that the immigration population who we invited, they were settling, they were having lots of babies, those who were, if I can use the term, native Europeans, were going the opposite direction. They were stopping having so many babies. We were going into demographic decline. So you see how these cross currents come together. We invite them, large numbers. They settle here, start having lots of children. The very moment that's happening, we begin to shrink the size of our families. Now what that means for the present is that Muslims have reached a kind of population density where they are a very significant minority. So a minority, but we, we feel their presence within Europe. We can't ignore them. And this is what I say is the story of Islam's second sojourn on European soil. Very different from the first one. So if you look at Europe from Ireland over to Russia, in the 1970s, there was roughly 18 million Muslims in that expansive space. In 2000, there was 32 million. It's a huge increase. And they say of the 15 million Muslims of Western Europe were a nation, it would be the sixth largest country in the European Union. And there are, of course, Muslims of European stock. They didn't always come here. We've got the Balkan states, which are Muslim. So it's a complex picture. But there's something very important for us to understand here. Back in the 1950s and 60s and 70s, the new immigration was defined in terms of race rather than religion. My wife comes from Bradford, where there's a high number of Asians from Pakistan. And I lived there for seven years through the 80s. Back then, they were called Asians. Today, everyone calls them Muslims. That is very significant. We used to call them Asians. So that was their race. Now we define them according to their religion. They've become Muslims. Now that raises the question. Why are they defined today by means of religion rather than race? And I think this is very important for understanding the religious landscape of Europe. I think that in between the race issue and the religion issue is a reality of class. The majority of Muslims in Europe are young because of the high birth rates. So there's a lot of young, urban Muslims throughout Europe. And the vast majority of these young urban Muslims belong to the underclass. They live in poverty, relative, with very little chance of improving their lives. So think of the famous suburbs of Paris, living in ghettos, North Africans, surrounded by shelves of factories, largely on welfare and largely undereducated. And as an underclass, they have a deep sense of race discrimination. They're the poor ones, they have darker skin, and the whites are more wealthy, more privileged. So black, white, rich, poor. And that gives them a very strong sense of belonging to an oppressed class. It makes it easy for them to identify with the Islamic world, which also has this persona of being oppressed. So they have Europe's imperial history in the background. 
We made our empires, not all of them, but many of them, out of oppressing Muslims. They witnessed current contemporary global events, the Gulf War, Iraq, Afghanistan, on our news every night. And again, it's a picture of oppressed Muslims. So it's interesting, the oppressed of Europe today are not the working class. The working class is the oppressed classes. That kind of died with the collapse of Marxism. The oppressed of, of Europe are young urban Muslims who have now seized this identity of being the oppressed class. And that makes Islam a religion of the oppressed. And young urban Muslims deeply identify with that. We belong to the religion of the oppressed, the underclass of Europe. And actually, this has been pointed out to me by some people who work very closely, work within Muslim communities within the United Kingdom. When you see a young Muslim woman with the head covering, don't be fooled by that. It's not for them a symbol of being a doormat of being, I'm a woman and I take my place there. It's very much a symbol of their cultural and religious identity, and it's a statement of belonging to the religion of the oppressed. They wear it with pride. So this sense of being the oppressed class makes young Muslims very political in their consciousness, akin to Marxists in Europe in the 1950s. I wasn't around then, but universities were full of that, weren't they? So now their sense of religion is much more about a cultural identity than it is about strict adherence to beliefs and practices. And that's why we can say that much of Islam in Europe is more about a social reality which has become to be defined in religious terms. And that makes it very dangerous. The class issue, the underclass, put together with religion, makes it very potent. But I think that largely describes where it is today. So that's the brief historical sketch. It was longer than 20 seconds. But that's <laughs> the place of the three main players. Modernity firmly in the majority. They have the center ground. Christianity minority, marginalized. In the last few decades, another presence, a blast from the past, a significant minority of Muslims who are making their presence felt across the continent. Well, let me quickly, and this is going to be just snapshots. I want to take a snapshot of these three players and where they are in the present moment. So let me start with Islam, because that's where we finished off. What are the positive factors that favor Islam as a religious presence in Europe for the future? What are the positive factors? Well, first of all, there's the numbers. Islam in Europe has demography on its side. The number of Muslims in Europe has quadrupled between 1970 and 2000. Now there are some pretty heavy projections for the future in terms of this increase. At present, within Western Europe, Muslims make up about 4% of the population. There are still large areas in Europe where Islam is hardly present. In 2050, conservative estimates put the figure at around 15%. Now, I need to put a caveat here. There's a lot of hysteria out there that we best ignore. There are claims that Europe is on the brink of becoming Eurabia. The demographics don't work. That's, that's <coughs> sensational. And sensationalism. 
<coughs> and I think some Christians have bought into that. This doesn't add up. Significant minority continuing to grow. 2050, it's still a long way off. 15%. But that means still, as the population rises, that they'll have increasing influence within Europe. That's a fact of life. And this awkward demographic, demographic trend is likely to maintain Islam as a flourishing religion within Europe. And that's because large, healthy families are important to maintaining the faith. The Catholics understood that. I have kids. So that's the first thing, the numbers, which makes it it's a positive factor for them. The second is high levels of commitment. I refer to this in my historical sketch. Young Muslims identify with Islam as the religion of the oppressed, because they make up a large part of the European underclass. So Islam provides a strong sense of belonging for the dispossessed, and that means a high level of commitment. Social underclass plus religion, ooh, that's going to make for commitment. And that's in contrast to the white youth of Europe, who tend to, to lack the sense of belonging. They don't know what they're here for. They're pretty empty and disconnected and uncommitted. I think European Muslims are quite different, much more focused. They don't have the ideological apathy that so many uh, non-Muslims have. And I think that high level of belonging and commitment provide energy for growth into the future. And you see this in the way they're building mosques. They become symbols on the skylines of Europe. It's interesting, the first generation of immigrants who came in the 50s and 60s didn't build many mosques. One uh, statistic I read here is that in 1966, there were, how many do you think, mosques in the United Kingdom in 1966? 12. 12 is close. 18. <clears throat> in 1997? Over 100. 1,000. <laughs> that shows commitment. It's galvanized. And positive for them in terms of the future. What about the negative factors that threaten Islam in Europe? What are their challenges? Well, the first is the challenge of modernity itself. I think the question is, can Islam survive modernity? Because modernity is a mighty cultural force, as Christianity has learned through hard experience. So take the issue of demography. At the moment, Islam has demography on its side. It's growing still because they're having more babies than we are. The question is, for how long? Can the Islamic family structure survive the pressures of modernity? More and more Islamic women are going out to work. They're being free and liberated to go out and get jobs. Young women are doing this. So will their birth rates continue at this high rate? I think probably not. That's the challenge of modernity. And what about the challenge of modernity to the way Islam is practiced within Europe? Can Islam withstand the sexual freedom that modernity champions? This is one of the biggest challenges to Christianity in the post-war period, the sexual revolution. How's it going to affect Islam? And what about the place of women within Islamic faith? Modernity undergirded by its liberal agenda calls for an independent role for women. 
Now that's a deep challenge to the Islamic family living under strict traditional values which come from their religion. There's a clash there. How is it going to cope with it? And we could multiply examples. I'm simply making the point that on a number of fronts, the pressure for Muslims to accommodate to modernity will be hard to resist. And we should know here that it's often the fear of modernity that's the incentive to Islamic extremism. They recognize this threat, which is why those who are in fear react to it, often in, a, in, a, in, a, in an extreme way. That's a tiny minority, but it's the fear. What they're reacting to is modernity, to the liberal agenda. The other negative factor that threatens and challenges Islam in Europe is this. There are so many competing voices to define the heart of Islam in Europe. So many competing voices. What is a European Islam? Well, there isn't a generic one. It just doesn't exist. It's a bit the same, the same similar challenge as what's a European Christian? Is it an Anglican, a Catholic? Orthodox, a Baptist, a Calvinist, an exclusive brethren. Very diverse, complex. The other thing on this point is defining the heart of, of Islam in Europe. There's such ethnic diversity amongst European Muslims. There's many different types. We tend to symbolize Muslims in Europe primarily through the Arab states, but that's just one source. We've got Muslims coming from Morocco, we've got Turkish Muslims, Nigerian Muslims who are a big force. And these are different forms of their faith, they have different levels of commitment. It's, it's a hard thing to define what it, what it is, Islam in Europe. And then you have competing voices from abroad <clears throat> into the ethnic mix. You have these voices from Saudi Arabia, the Wahhabis. Uh, the, the Wahhabis are a reform movement that goes back to the 18th century, and they see many Muslims around the world as the infidels. So their mission is to bring back Muslims to the true faith. They're the reformers. And it's quite a radical form of Islam, and there's tons of money behind it. You think of what's going on in Iraq today. Shiites and Sunnis. Well, that same conflict is here in Europe. Radical opposition to each other. Then you've got the Sufis. It's said that the Sufis are to Islam what the monastic orders <coughs> are to the Catholics. They're very active politically. And many see the Sufis as the key players to Islamic expansion in Europe. They're very adaptable, resilient. They're very attractive, especially to, to youth. And they're an active force for the heart of Islam in Europe. But against all these other competing voices. And then perhaps the most complex is this. You have the competing voices between old Muslims and young Muslims. And I'm told if you go into mosques, they're often quite divided between the views of the elders, the older generation, who are quite moderate, and the younger generation who can often be quite radical. And there's a huge tension between the generation gap of Muslims within Europe. So each of these competing voices are looking to define the heart of European Islamic practice and faith, but it, it hasn't happened. It's, there's deep divisions that threaten the stability of European Islamic faith. So this is part of a pressure which I think hasn't been sorted out yet. <clears throat> the other negative factor is at the core of what Islam is, and it's 
basically what we can call an enculturated religion. Islam is an enculturated religion. What do I mean by that? Well, in Islam, religion and culture are exactly the same thing. So when you become a Muslim, you don't just take on a creed. You adopt a particular cultural practice where there's little room for maneuver. And this point is actually one of the battlefields within Europeans, within, uh, amongst Muslims in Europe, the reformers and the radicals. And I think this enculturated dimension of Islam, if you become a Muslim, it touches the way you dress, you take on a whole culture with it, and you have to reject everything else. That's traditionally how it's been. You can't separate culture and religion. It's one and the same. And that's totally odd with a multicultural Europe. And that's part of where the, the crisis really is. The multiculturalism, which undergirds liberalism, is such a threat to the enculturated nature of what Islam is. So there's a snapshot of, of Islam. There's positive factors. They're growing this tremendous commitment and energy. And therefore, we can see it from one angle. We're going to grow and thrive in Europe. But there's huge challenges. Huge challenges. Can it survive modernity? And will it survive the challenge of all these competing voices? It's not homogenous. Very divide, divided amongst themselves. And are they going to sort that out? Let me move on now to modernity itself. What about the positive factors that favor modernity as an ongoing force within Europe. Well, the first point I make here that is simply that modernity is king. It's as simple as that. Liberal democracy is here to stay and will stay for a long time. Despite challenges, we can say, I think, categorically that modernity will dominate the cultural, political, and economic life of Europe well into the future. This is not an animal that's going to die easily. And that means it's going to play a central role in the life of Europe. And I think it's likely that Christianity and Islam will need to define themselves in relation to modernity for the indefinite future. <coughs> Simple as that. That's the positive. But let me move on now to the negative factors that actually threaten modernity in its present form in Europe today. Because there's huge challenges to modernity. The first is the challenge of religion itself. Both Islam and Christianity have a vision of reality that transcends states. In modernity, nation-state is ultimate, not with respect to Islam and Christianity. And Islam and Christianity both existed before the birth of the modern nation-state. And I believe they'll outlast to certainly true of Christianity. And Christianity and Islam are firmly entrenched within Europe. They're not just going to go away. So the old pipe dream of complete secularization within Europe has not come true. And this is the 21st century in Europe. Religion is here to stay. You wanted to push it off, create a naked public square. It hasn't happened, and it's not going to happen. Get used to it. It's interesting for me to look at ancient Rome as a model of an old form of nation-state. <coughs> the main difference between ancient Rome and modern Europe is that 
ancient Rome still had religion, and religion galvanized the empire together. And I believe modernity, which is premised on the death of religion, getting it out of the public space, is struggling to cope with the challenge of religion today. But no longer can modernity ignore religion. So the question is, what do we do with it? So yesterday, I got an email this morning. Thousands of Christians have signed petitions, both the bill going through Parliament at the moment, to redefine what marriage is. That's a force. There's a lot of people who are saying, no, this has to be discussed more honestly and openly and not just driven through. We have a problem with this redefinition. So religion is here to stay. That's the challenge of religion to modernity. The European Union Constitution that I referenced earlier shows that, showed us that the European elites didn't understand religion. They tried to wipe it out completely from our heritage and foundation. But it was turned down. It failed. And when it comes to Islam, I don't think Europe will ever absorb Islam. Just kind of suck it in to the way life is now. It's not going to be assimilated. And I think modernity also has to face up to the fact that it lacks what true religion provides. Modernity is very impoverished when it comes to symbol and ritual. So you look at our calendar. Our calendar still functions largely in the old church calendar. Christmas, Easter, Pentecost. What, if, what is modernity given to our calendar? Well, the only thing I can think of is bank holidays. <laughs> and that's because modernity is very impoverished, because it, it's wiped out the transcendent realm. We live in a flat universe, a naturalistic universe. So we're, we're so impoverished when it comes to symbol. I think modernity also has a poverty of story. Religions have great stories. We as Christians have the greatest story, centered in Christ, whole of history around him. And that shaped our calendar, it shaped our architecture, it shaped our art. Modernity is impoverished there also. It largely has a negative story. Modernity's story is how we've got free from the oppression of Christianity. Meanwhile, hanging on to the best bits of the calendar, the best bits of the architecture, a religionless Europe? Go to Florence and say, what would Florence look like without religion? Be not a single building in that city. It's true of so many of our cities. Shape our cultural heritage. Modernity doesn't have that. It's given rise to no great mythologies, no meta-narratives. But meanwhile, the same religion that modernity is displaced haunts the memory of modern Europe. You see this, the echoes of this in our landscape. Every town, the smallest village in Great Britain has a church. Our countryside is marked by our past. And the cityscapes tell this story of the past, and it rustles and disturbs us. As I said, modernity hasn't eradicated the story, the ritual, the symbol, the calendar. Because it's not being able to replace it with something better. And that's a challenge for modernity. 
So the challenge of religion is a real threat to modernity. The second is the crisis of liberalism. The crisis of liberalism. What are the core values of European liberalism? Well, tolerance, individualism, and progressive views of gender and family and, uh, and, and sexuality, which can be worked out in lots of different ways. Those are some of the core values. As I say, this week's news, that's all been played out before us. So how will these core values deal with a significant group like the Muslims, who radically differ in their own values? Muslims who, in a million years, are not going to condone homosexual practice. And actually, Muslims who will never take on the liberal view of feminism. And that's a crisis to liberalism. Especially as many of these values are actually enshrined in European law. <clears throat> Here's an example of the crisis. Liberals are committed to free speech. The right to say what we want publicly. But in the last few years, we've had to look at the limits of free speech. So we now have the Incitement to Hatred Act. On the one hand, we have Muslims wanting to revive blasphemy laws. And now we're so, that's limit speech there, and over here, well, you have to be careful what you say if it incites hatred. No, I actually believe in that, but the point is that it undermines the core values of liberalism, which is all about free speech. So I think the presence of Islam in European soul is a real crisis for modern liberalism. And actually, as Christians, I think we should see that the presence of Islam is more a problem for modernity than it is for us as Christians. It really challenges the core of modern liberalism. The other challenge to liberalism, of course, is the fact that radical Islam, extreme Islam, which is a minority, but still makes a significant impact because of how they go on, it's created a rather politically unstable Europe. And so you think of what's happened politically over the last decade, especially since 9-11. Huge political reforms to try and deal with that instability, which actually threatens the core of liberalism. We could go on here, but there's huge challenges for European liberals because Islam has, is making its presence, presence felt. And uh, I, I think liberalism is challenged at its very core. And it's going to be interesting to see actually which direction it goes in. Good, let me finish now by looking at Christianity. We've looked at Islam, positive factors, why it might continue to boom and grow, but the challenges, the challenge that threatened its growth. We've looked at modernity, it's king, it's stable, it has the center ground, but because of religion, creeping back into the public space, there's huge challenges, right to the core of liberal core values. What about Christianity? Well, again, the negative factors that threaten Christianity in Europe. The first is declining numbers. Since the 1960s, the trend numerically in terms of the number of people going to church has been steadily downwards. And we have many beautiful churches, Anglican churches in our villages, which are struggling to keep going. Our local parish, our, 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 the guy who looks after the church, he looks after three churches. Has to look after three churches. This is being 
multiplied throughout the countryside at least. And that's because we have declining numbers. Now, the decline is greater in Protestant countries than Catholic countries, but still in Catholic countries also there's a struggle. Huge downturn in the number of ordinances going forward for holy orders. So that's a negative factor that threatens our future in Europe, declining numbers. The other negative factor that threatens our, our life of vitality of Christianity in Europe is this. The prevailing story of Christianity is the bad boy of Europe. This is the prevailing story that most people live in. The problem with Europe is Christians. Their narrow-mindedness, their the oppression of the past. So the story goes like this. When Christians ruled Europe, it was all bad. It was all corrupt. Christianity is the religion of the oppressors. Look, it burned the Crusades. It mistreated women. It blocked scientific advance. It was racist. It was imperialistic. And it has a very negative view of sex. And it propped up the gentry through corrupt church hierarchies. And it goes on and on and on. Now there is, of course, a thread of truth here in a web of lies. <clears throat> My point is that this is the story that Christianity has thrust against it. And that's marginalized us and largely silenced us in the public square. And that's why in the, the present debate about redefining marriage, anyone who stands up and says they're a Christian, just boom, the label is put straight on you. You're a gay basher. You're a homophobe. It's almost impossible to speak. I often speak in public places and in universities. And it's the label that's put on me immediately that I begin to talk about the subject. So there's not no space at all to talk about the dozens of gay people that I've worked with over the years of the breed, invited into my home, my friendships with them. For the moment you say, no, I don't think this is what they Oh, yeah, the bad boy of Europe label comes out. And I think it's the form of persecution that we endure in Europe today. It's a negative factor which is very hard to live with. What about the positive factors, then, that favor our ongoing presence within Europe? Well, I believe there's plenty of positive factors. The first thing is, is that Jesus is the Lord of the universe. He's risen from the dead. And his victory is secure. That's positive. Very positive. And as bad as things seem at the moment, that's our hope. Jesus is the Lord of all the nations. And I believe the nations increasingly will bow to him. So we have tremendous hope as we think about the future, despite how dark things seem in the moment. Let me list some of the positive factors I see. The first is new kinds of Christians. I see here higher levels of commitment by European Christians. While many nominal churchgoers have slipped away from their faith over the last few decades, others have turned and become more focused and dedicated. And although we're a minority group within Europe, we're still a much larger presence than the Muslims. So when we think about minorities, don't get carried away. We're still a larger minority than the Muslims. And I'd say here also that being in a minority place is not a disaster for Christianity. We've been there many times in our history. In fact, being in the minority often acts to revitalize faith and renew it. And that's 
quietly, there's a the really vibrant Christian presence in Europe today. I've traveled widely throughout Europe. And I'm amazed at what small groups are doing. And I think it's possible that, that Christianity is as influential culturally today than it's been for decades. Small groups doing wonderful things. I think we need to be careful not to confuse institutional decline within churches with the uprooting of faith. Some wonderful things are happening. An example of that in terms of new kinds of Christians is the growth of immigrant churches. Some of you may know this, but some of the largest churches within Europe are immigrant churches. Nigerians, different African, but some of the largest, the largest London church is primarily an African church. So Africans, East Asia, Latin Americans, these have brought, us, have brought a strong Christian presence to Europe and a real potent force. And many want to repay their obligation to Europe. We went to them, brought the gospel to them and the great missions movement. They now feel compelled to come to us, to bring the gospel back to us. I was shocked a few years back where I, when I listened to an Indian intellectual, an economist, one of, the, one of the world leading economists, Prabhu Guttar, and he was a wonderful Christian man, and he was lecturing to us Europeans, and he kept referring to Europe as the dark continent. <laughs> well, those of us who know a little bit of Christian's history will know that when we sent our first out to India, we sent our missionaries to the dark continent. Here was an Indian saying, you are the dark continent. Very humbling. And I know a number in Latin America, in Brazil, who have as their mission, as their focus, Europe. And, and it is about fulfilling, repaying a debt. Thank you for bringing the gospel to us. What have you guys done with it? <laughs> Can we come back and share it with you again? And that's, that's a lot of my hope for the future of, of Europe. And I, I tell them when I go to Africa, South America, I tell them I'm a mercenary. I want to help you if I can. I don't know what I can. You're vibrant. But if I can do anything to help you, so you'll come back and help us again. And I think there's huge hope there. Another thing to say here in terms of positive factors is the weight of our history. I mentioned this earlier, the symbols on our landscape. Think of street names in our towns and cities. Many of them, just look at street names. So many of them reflect our Christian past. You can try and root Christianity out of the European Union Constitution, but you cannot root it out of our landscape and the symbols that we live by. And I think as Europe sees the challenge posed by Islam, many are going to Tickled in terms of their historical memory. They're going to say, well, where do we come from, this European, this religion thing that's all around? What's going on? I understand that many of the bishops in this country say their cathedrals are filling up. Cathedrals have never been so full of young people who are beginning to search and say, okay, religion's back on the agenda. Where do we come from? What is our past? What's the story behind us? And although there are some academics who try to completely marginalize our heritage in Christianity, many who aren't Christians are saying it comes from Christianity and nothing else. I have a quote here from a guy called Jürgen Habermas. 
He's a German. He belongs to the Frankfurt School. These guys are neo-Marxists, social theorists that don't uh, have much time for Christianity. But here's what Jürgen Habermas says. Christianity and nothing else is the ultimate foundation of liberty, conscience, human rights, and democracy, the benchmarks of Western civilization. To this day, we have no other option to Christianity. We continue to nourish ourselves from this source. Everything else is postmodern shatter. Wow. You know the little Habermas. He's no friend of Christianity. He says, if we're going to be honest about our roots and what continues to nourish us, it's Christianity and nothing else. So I believe the weight of our history can have a good influence into the future. That's what we come from, and that's where we lose it. Good. I'm going to leave it there because I'd love us to open it up for, for questions. You see what I've done? Brief history. It's been very dense on Melvin. Brief overview of history of these three players. What favors each of these players in terms of the future, the positive factors, the negative factors? We try and give an overall snapshot. It's a complex picture, and I think it's often oversimplified through the through the media. But I, I'd, I'd love to open it up and hear your comments and feedback and, and questions. Uh, I do know there's only one rule, which is that you have to put your hand up so I can bring you the microphone so that everybody can hear um, your interesting questions. So seeing as England and Great Britain actually seemingly are a part of Europe, according to some people, <laughs> where do you actually see the Church of England in Great Britain going with relation to what's happened in the last 40, 50 years? Yeah. Yeah, there might be others here who can do much better with that question than I can. I, I, I was talking about um, the decline in terms of numbers as being a negative factor, and that's largely happened for the Anglican Church. And um, smaller groups, we call them evangelicals, who are nonconformists have actually done quite well in many respects. Um, so the, there's the negative picture in terms of Anglicanism. There, there's a massive hemorrhage taking place. But to paint it all tall black is just not the picture because there is vibrancy and new movements within Anglicanism, which I, I find so encouraging. So I find Anglicanism as bewildering as anything to try and understand because it's so diverse. And that's part of what I want to try to do in this lecture is to show this complex picture. So we mustn't oversimplify it. Um, but on the on the one hand, I feel oof, future of Anglicanism. How are we going to keep all these little churches going because of the decline? On the other hand, I see new vibrancy in life. I have connection to some church plants up in London, and these Anglican churches are booming, hundreds and hundreds of people. And my where I come from is. Um, gospel-centered, teach the Bible, the Bible touches all of life, and I think, I think that has had real fruitfulness, and that's where you often see the vibrancy happening with, with, within the Anglican tradition. So, 
you might want to comment on that. Places to be encouraged, places where you think, oh dear, where is this going? And no, a lot no, of reorganization happening too, isn't it? People can listen to me much of the time. They, you, we've only got you for a few more minutes. So. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, um, can I ask my own question? <laughs> um, by almost omission, or by complete omission actually, you have said nothing about um, the, let's call them the active atheists. Does that, is that because you don't actually think they're significant within these three forces, or that they are, in some sense, a kind of trivial Yeah, yeah I wouldn't upset anyone in my answer to that question. We, Christians have given a huge amount of attention to Dawkins, to the new atheism, as we call it. And I'm glad we have done that, because they've been a very loud voice. I don't think they represent the mainstream by any means. And my view of the new atheists is that <clears throat> the, 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 the loudness of their cry is their death rattle. <laughs> and that they, they are seriously feeling the pressure because of some of the, the, the factors I've raised here. The, the, is this Islam making its presence known? And um, <clears throat> I, I haven't engaged it like some apologists have, but when you do, it, it feels hysterical. There's a hysteria, which is, is bizarre in some ways. So I, I, I think, yes, we need to take them seriously, but my own view is that apologists have given too much time to it, It's because it's not mainstream. I, I, I think they are increasingly a threat in minority themselves. Because religion has come back, so it's the whole point. The dream was to completely secularize Europe, and the new atheists see for themselves the dream hasn't happened. It's lay, they call it laicization. They'll be spun to the edges and then fall off completely. That's the hope for a, a totally naked public square. It hasn't happened, so they're virically fighting it. That's my own view. I mean, the other thing on that is. You can be on a train going up to London. One day, someone's reading The God Delusion. The next day, they're reading Paola Coelho, The Alchemist. I, I don't think there are many who are coherent in their, their atheism. Most young people believe there's some kind of spiritual reality out there. Many, or some Muslims, seem to find that their politics is dominated by their religion. Do you see this as a threat to our politics in this country? Yep. That is a very observant question. I, I've been going for too long. I skipped my last point and that was it. Um, <laughs> the, the point being that, that Christianity is rooted in a theology of what Augustine called the two cities. That we belong simultaneously to the city of God, which is the kingdom of God, and to the city of man. We belong to the state. And we can belong in both places simultaneously and not be totally in, in conflict because we belong to those two realms. Islam has no place for that at all. There's only one city. And religion and state and politics have to be bound together. Now, the moderates realize that you can't have that in Europe, so they're trying to redefine that part of it. But Islam, according to the Quran, is, I use the word, enculturated. You can't separate politics and religion. And I think 
And I think that makes it very, very difficult for, for Islam to stay true to its fundamentals within Europe. Now you have some saying, Muslim calling for Sharia law within the European context. Um, and in a sense, that's what it reflects, that they need their own law. They need to be governed by a law that allows their religious practice and their adherence to the state to be exactly the same. So I, I, I think it's a huge challenge for them. Does that, does that come near, near your question? Or no. You? I'm just afraid that it may ultimately, in the long run, affect our politics. Yeah. I, well, I think, I think it's challenging our, our politics. Um, I'm a huge admirer of our archbishop. I found it a bit bizarre. Was it two years ago? And I, I think we might have misunderstood him. Maybe he was misquoted. But he, he was musing about the possibility of Sharia law. I, I'm totally opposed to that. Um, I think the rule of law, lex rex, even the king, queen comes under law is a, a European democratic principle that we have to continue to abide, abide by. Um, and I, I, I'll be very surprised if we give way there. You see the French, the, I mean liberal democracy in a sense is birthed in France, but they're pushing very strongly against this, very strongly. So I, 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 doubt, I doubt we're going to concede much there. And that's part of the challenge for, for Islam. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Just in putting your choice of the word, you talk about the three lane players. What, what, what's the game? <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, what is it we've been talking about before? I said it's pluses and minuses. Uh, are you talking about kind of cultural dominance? What, what's, what do you see as the big games? Yeah, I would say influence. So the main influence culturally from the fourth century onwards was Christianity. And I believe the Bible deeply shaped the foundations of European culture at every level. It wasn't always perfect, um, but it shaped it deeply. And that brought an influence which shaped how we do family, think about family, how we think about wealth creation, um, how we think about liberty, how we think about human rights. So, so for me, all culture has influence. And I, I, I'm, I'm with thinkers like T.S. Eliot says, you can't have culture without religion. It's impossible. So for, for me, dominance is not the word I want to use because it's, this is as a Christian, it's not ultimately about power, but it is about influence. Um, the thing I love about being a Christian is that I can still be committed to influence without power. That's what Philip coming from America is a little bit different. Some, some Americans think that influence and power are the same thing. You have to have power. You have to have the White House. We are a minority here, but we can still have a terrific influence. Um, but I would say that as influence grows, it creates establishments. It's impossible not for cultural establishments to be created by growing influence, and it's how we use those. And I think the modernist um, story about the corruption of religious establishments has some truth in it. But yeah, I'll, the word influence, is that, is, that, is that word? And for me, the argument the opposite direction is saying, 
This influence, which is eroded, the Christian influence in Europe, there's been huge consequences for it. So even economically, the kind of economic systems that are in place today weren't the ones birthed in Europe by the Bible. That's modern liberal economic capitalism. And it's been very ugly. Um, but it doesn't mean I'm anti-capitalist. I'm totally for capitalism, but a different form. That's influencing it. And we can show, huh, had we stuck to the Bible, and we had stuck to the Bible's teaching on debt, and its teaching against greed, we would have avoided this. Whereas modern liberalism had no mechanism to actually challenge these things. It's influence. You mentioned that Europe's were defined by nation rather than religion. Would you say perhaps that Northern Ireland is an exception to this? Yeah. That's a good question. Protestant or Catholic, and maybe that's the only way you can get a particular job. Yeah. The, the, the way you worship. Yeah. And maybe there we're getting a snapshot of how it, how it used to be. And it's quite chaotic, isn't it? But yeah, I mean, anybody else with a Northern Irish background? That, 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 that works for me, that it's, that's still, it's quite dominant, isn't it, in terms of identity within that place, but totally tied to history. I mean, finding battles that were like hundreds and hundreds of years. I haven't thought about that. That's, that's, that's a very interesting question. Andrew, um, you've said quite a lot about modernism from, uh, from its beginning in the Middle Ages after now, but you haven't mentioned post-religion. I think you did mention it once, personal religion. And this, you know, we've been studying from time to time, has uh, had quite an influence on spirituality yeah. and the way in which we've developed. And it's been blamed to a certain extent for people leaving churches and things like that. The influence of the two world wars, etc. Yeah. Um, do you not think this has uh, some relevance to what's going on? Yeah, no, that's a very good question. I do think there's relevance. I, I, I use the word modernism as an ideology. Anything that has an ism is a set of ideas. And my, my brief part of history was that an ideology called modernism gave birth to a social reality called modernity. And, and it's, for me, quite important that we distinguish between a set of ideas and a social reality. So, in a sense, I, when I use the word modernity, I'm talking about a social reality. Now, within that social reality called modernity, I personally don't believe in, in post-modernity. There's no such thing as post-modernity. There is such a thing as post-modernism, which is challenging the ideas that undergird our social reality. And I think that, at a small level, has had a huge impact, especially on a younger generation, who don't have the same confidence in truth and science, as I, I talked about it, that another generation did. And so that makes them very open to pick and mix religion. On Monday, I'll be a Kabbalist. On Tuesday, I'll be a Hindu. And on Wednesday, I'll be a Muslim. And on Thursday, I'm going to mix it all together and create my own religion. And just keep sparring through that. So I... I, 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 think, I think it's had an impact on individuals. I don't see it as a monolithic 
movement through the whole culture, which has radically changed socially how we function. But, but some wouldn't agree with that. I, I think we jumped on the post-modernity bandwagon a little bit too quickly. I think the structure of social life today is not much different from the social structure of life back in the 1700s. Public, private, public square, governed by rationality and science. And there's been tweaks in it, but I think it's largely the same structure. Uh, two things. First of all, um, sadly, I'm, uh, my hearing isn't terribly good. I, I, thankfully, I heard all of your lecture. I haven't been able to hear some of the exchanges, so I hope that what I'm going to say you haven't already dealt with. Uh, first of all, I just wanted to uh, express my appreciation. I think we've been extremely fortunate in these three uh, evenings that we've had of the excellence that we've been presented with, and uh, I, I found it quite, quite extraordinary, the, 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 the new insights that you have given to me, what you've expressed, so I just wanted to thank you very much for that. Mm -hmm. Secondly, I also wanted to say that I sometimes find that uh, in terms of this question of uh, uh, theology or liberalism, I sometimes find that I associate myself with the liberalism yeah. rather than with the theology. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I find myself at the moment in this, uh, in this question regarding all the issues that are going on, yeah. uh, regarding the homosexuality issue. I, 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 I feel so sad yeah. at some of the things that are being said. Yeah. And I really wanted to make the liberal, liberal point of view. Yeah. And, uh, I, I think with a theological um, uh, backing as well. Yeah. But uh, uh, that's all. I just wanted to comment. Yeah. Well, I, I, I want to say I can, I can relate to that. And, and when one sees ugly orthodoxy with a truculent, aggressive edge, lacking compassion, it makes me want to become a liberal, just like that. Um, but I guess the point I would make is when I use the term liberal, I'm not talking about theological liberalism. I'm talking about cultural liberalism. Um, I would say both Christianity and liberalism are undergirded by a theology. That there's, there's a set of ideas underneath them. And there I see the, the conflict between the, the, the biblical view and the more modernist view. But I totally agree with you. There are sometimes when I hear rabid Christians talk about these issues with a lack of compassion, and it just oh, it, it does great discredit to the gospel and, and, and to the way that Christ calls us to walk. So I, I, I can appreciate that. Thank you. Um, I think my question came about because of the question about Northern Ireland and um, what the gentleman said earlier. And I began to wonder whether um, uh, the, in, in, in Northern Ireland the important thing is to fight for some kind of, to get to some kind of a place where the definition is by their culture and their country rather than by their religion. Yeah. And I guess Christianity, Catholicism, Protestants were also in that place once upon a time when you were a Catholic or a Methodist or whatever it was you were. And I'm wondering if it's quite possible well, what they think is quite possible, that 
people who are perhaps Christianity so has been established for such a long time that we've gone past that stage. Mm. So we're no longer thinking, well, my first identity is a Christian. You know, I'm British, yeah. and, and, and that's who I am, you know, and then I'm a Christian. Yeah. Whereas before, you used to define yourself according to the religion, but that kind of died down a bit. So I'm wondering if a time is likely to come when somewhere like um, Northern Ireland, say, might just become Northern Irish. And then the next question is, Christian or Muslim? I'm oh, sorry. Like your pardon, Catholic or Protestant. <laughs> yeah, yeah I, I, I think that's, that's true. And you use the word identity. Um, we live in a strange, contradictory world. We're becoming globalized on the one, one hand, but none of us feel my identity is a citizen of the whole universe. And then we're becoming tribalized on the other hand. So... This is not a political statement on my part. You know, the Scottish now want their independence, and soon it will be the Yorkshire. <laughs> <laughs> the Cornwallites of the West Country. But this, we see this movement, the radical tribalization, which, because people are finding enough in their nation state, that's a little bit where the postmodern thing is. We have to find smaller units. But I would still say one of the main threats in Europe is nationalism. And my worry for our country is that we're moving into a new type of racism. Um, and it's, 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 not, it's not the National Front who are these races. I hear racist rhetoric from more and more middle class people. Um, I call it a new racism because it's no longer really about skin color. If you have dark skin and you talk with an English accent, you're okay. But if you have a Polish accent, get out because you've taken my job. So it's a new form of racism, but it's still a racism which is based on nationality. So I, I, I think we live in very dangerous times because our identity is still still linked in that way. And I have to say, I, I worry for the future of Europe right here. A lot of elections. Sarkozy, desperate now in France to try and gain the upper hand, and it's race. It's the race card that he's pulled out. So I, I, I think I think it's still dominant and worrying. The one the other thing that came out of your question was really the problem of power. And I, I, I think um, Christianity in Europe has misused power, which I, I think maybe your your question raised the question the, the issue of goal. What is the goal here? What is the game? And we, we have to pay the price for, for power being misused. I don't think the kid, that Christ needs Constantine um, in order to do his, get, get, get his mission done. Um, so, yeah, I think, I think a new vision of church-state relationships needs to be put on the table and looked at. I think in America, the issue of Christianity there, where there's a huge power base amongst Bible-believing Christians, but I think there's a lot of confusion about power and where these things are going to go. Hi. Um, you touched quite a lot to go in different states in society and whatever. Um, one of the things that strikes me that we haven't really discussed at all is that the Bible sets Christians apart from the rest of the world. And <clears throat> I honestly believe we're in a spiritual battle between us and them, effectively. Um, one of the things that's come out here that there are all sorts of diverse sects in there. 
And we said it earlier, if you divide and conquer, you weaken the party. Yep. How, how do you see us becoming united? I mean, we have lots of, you know, Baptists, Presbyterians, Catholics, Anglicans. The fact is, Jesus walked and talked to everybody. And he loved and saved everybody. So there shouldn't be any really sex there. And I think if we could all sort of unite as one and then send that message out to people, we could become that voice again in Europe. Because I honestly believe that, I mean, I heard a, um, somebody talking a few um, months ago in Spain that the angel of hope has returned to Europe. And I truly believe that. I've seen things that are happening throughout Europe. Unless we get out as a united front and tell people that Jesus came to save them, that he died for them and it's his blood. And we can talk about all these sects and all these things, but that is the world, is it not, trying to encourage us to go away from what we believe, what is our grassroots. I just wonder how you felt on that. It's a spiritual battle. Well, that I totally agree with. It, it is ultimately a spiritual battle. And it's a spiritual battle between two kingdoms. Yeah. The kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, and the kingdom of darkness. And my hope, I think every Christian has this hope, is that the Lord's Prayer, your kingdom come, your will be done, here in earth as it is in heaven, isn't an empty prayer. That's what's going to what has happened and it will continue to happen. The kingdom will come and it will transform the nations. And those of us who are Christians need to see our primary identity to Christ and to his kingdom, which is a spiritual kingdom, not to the particular denomination we belong to. It's primarily to him and to his kingdom. And that's, that's like we say, spiritual and we're involved in the battle there. Um, what I don't want to do is say there's no place therefore for denominations. Because there's lots of... I love the diversity of Christ Church. The Anglican Church itself is incredibly diverse. And then you've got lots of denominations. I, I don't think that itself is the great evil. I think the evil is when we, like you say, divide, we've got it, you don't. But saying that, I also feel that we, we have to have an irreducible minimum, which we say is true with respect to what Christianity is. So I also, it's very old-fashioned, but I, I do believe in orthodoxy. Not narrow orthodoxy, but we have, we have a revelation from God which defines what it means to belong to the kingdom of God, defines who Jesus are, defines who we are as human, human people. And that is the basis on which we, you know, we come together. So I, I agree with your comments with, without saying we should just eradicate all denominations because that would become another denomination which would be... <laughs> 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 I, 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 yeah. I just think that in society today we are so focused on all sorts of other things that we miss the focal part, yep. which is Jesus and the fact that he loves us. Yep. And um, our message is God's figure out and preach the gospel, not to go out and preach being a Baptist or a Catholic or a Protestant. And that is what is turning the, what are turning the Muslims to Christianity. Yep. And that is where we need to focus. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. With um, regard to people defining themselves by denomination, um, I'm a nurse and I originally did my nurse training in the early 80s and often when you noted down somebody's religion they would say I'm a Catholic, I'm a Protestant. Nowadays um, white people, if they 
more often than not, they will say they haven't got a religion, but if they choose to say they are, they are Christian. I sometimes write down Catholic. I, can't, I can probably count on one hand how many times I've written down Church of England or Anglican, but people are often Christian, not a denomination. And that's from sort of uh, the last six years I'm talking about to the present day. Now what do you think they mean when they write that word Christian? Well, I had um, uh, quite a quite a recent example. I would say that most people who would define as Christians with a small c, and that they're not an active member of a church community. But when they think for that moment about whether they want to be recognised as belonging to a religion, they recognise themselves as Christian, they, they want to be recognised yeah. as Christian. Because I'm using a lot here, I, it's very interesting this, what you're, you're saying here. I, I wonder, because there's so much press about Islam, Muslims, that increasingly people say, well, what religion? I know I'm not Muslim, so I'm a Christian. Yes, that that's right, yes, yeah. I would say so, yeah. yeah. I think we've probably got time for one more, one more there is. Thank you. Uh, I've noticed one or two people in Christian charities that they find it much easier to work with leaders of Islam than with local authorities. Which is thinking, uh, and, and I have one or two Muslim friends. So I find it quite inspiring to find what they get out of Muslim festivals as well. And I'm very puzzled about how Islam works for people mm. um, because it doesn't tie in with my conventional view of Christianity. Yeah. Um, I wonder how you find this. Yeah. I mean, as a, a short anecdote here. I, I have, a, have a friend, a wonderful Englishman who is in New York working into the United Nations. And the um, Universal Declaration of Human Rights, the Charter for the United Nations, has a very strong affirmation of what family is. And my friend Charlie is working in there to try to strengthen, to bring back an, an understanding of what family is. And as he's been there over the years, the people who are co-opting into them are the Muslims. And he's working with some Arab states, a royal family there, because they are closer to him as a Christian in terms of what family is, and championing universally this is what family stands for than, than, than the liberals are. So the, the guy who started with me was American by the name of Francis Schaeffer, and he called this co-belligerency. Which is sounds a bit threatening, but there are there are issues, cultural issues, where we can join with those who are completely different to us in our beliefs on matters of cultural reform, um, yeah, matters of, of human rights. And I think there are a number of issues where we as Christians would be closer to Muslims than we would be to to liberals, cultural liberals. Um, but I, I wouldn't share an evangelistic campaign with <laughs> That would go disastrously wrong. Andrew, thank you so much for 
coming and speaking so um, articulately and with such depth of knowledge about subjects which many of us, I think, felt feel now we were terribly ill-informed about before you started and for answering such a wide range of questions too. I'd like to thank you for that. I'm sure we would like to give you a round of applause. <laughs> something else if you wouldn't mind just keeping your microphone okay. attached but but before that if I can give the commercial for next week's lecture <laughs> it's Martin Cooper uh, who's, who's worked uh, up until his own retirement uh, with navigators for many years uh, and he's going to be talking about the topic which in his retirement for navigators he's been focusing on uh, with his wife it's quite a long title, but um, if you can stay awake for it. Um, I've started, so I'll finish, Living as a Christian Through Middle Age and Beyond. And I've been looking around, I'm trying to see whether there's anyone in the audience who fits that. <laughs> if you think that either you do already, or be sure that one day you will. So it is for everyone. And... Um, and I think we'll find that Martin maintains the standard that Ken referred to in the lectures. But, Andrew, you've been talking, and I think you've been trying to be as, um, as um, unbiased as you can, but I wondered if you would say a prayer for us all as we go out, um, in which you're not a, you, can be as, you can be as biased as you like. <laughs> Father in heaven, we thank you that you know us by name, and that we can call you by your wonderful name, and the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. And we thank you for the story, the true narrative that all of us live in, that he came into this world, was enfleshed, and as the Son of God, has wrought the most remarkable victory over the powers of darkness, and over all the ruin that is structured into the universe because of the fall. Thank you for his resurrection and the fact that that is our hope, that one day all nations will bow to you as their rightful Lord will do it gladly and we will live then in a, a peace and a harmony and stability in all the various facets of society because you will be our one true king. And Lord, we reaffirm tonight our vote for you as the one true ruler of this universe. And we pray that your kingdom would come and your will would be done here in Europe as it is in heaven. And Lord, we pray that you would help us as one of the minority groups as Christians as we seek to influence what's happening in our own country. We thank you for our heritage, how rich it is. And Lord, as we slowly but steadily squander it, we pray that you would help us to be salt of light in a way that will restore the foundations which are being destroyed. Lord, we think of what's happening right now in our country, uh, long debates on assisted suicide touching the sanctity of human life. And this week also, Lord, very troubling debates of medics who want to see infanticide legalized, moving from abortion to the termination of babies who are born. And then we think, Lord, of 
the large debate raging around how marriage is defined, Lord, we, we are distressed on the one hand and bring it to you and ask that you would hold us as a nation and restore us to uh, the values of the Bible. But Lord, we know we can't have it all our way. And in the battles that are lost, we believe help us to be compassionate and loving and just a faithful presence in the world where you have placed us. And so we, we commit our, our, our land to you with thankfulness that ultimately our hope is in you. So we come with thanksgiving and gratitude in your most worthy name.